Welcome to the Life of an Average Joe podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening wherever you are listening. We are wrapping up the year. I mean, it is crazy. We will be done very soon with 2021. Looking to see what 2022 brings. And I'm still going to have a hard time saying 2022. But I'm excited about this episode. Uh, This is something I've been wanting to talk about for a few months now. And uh, it's just another music episode, but it's focusing on two of the by far largest hip hop stars of all time, Tupac Shakur, Biggie Smalls, the Notorious B.I.G. Two of the biggest stars of all time, which is why I had such a hard time trying to figure out which song to play. I just did. I love that Tupac track, but there's so much more better quality tracks than that and I just didn't know what to play but yeah I want to talk about Tupac and the influence it had on me and that's funny I know what you're thinking how but I'm a music guy I love music and I love hip-hop I I don't necessarily care about modern hip-hop now I think it's just not what it was and it's they're not saying anything there's some great artists out there though over the last you know, besides Eminem, take Eminem out of the picture. You take the goat out of the picture. There's some great artists out there over the last 10 years, you know, in that hip hop genre that are great. I mean, just great. Childish Gambino, Kendrick Lamar, um, Kanye. Look, Kanye. Kanye's good. I don't care what you think of him as a person. He is a talented artist. And I don't even like all his songs, but he's awesome. Um... Post Malone. And see, I don't even really like to put Post Malone in that category because Posty is so different. He's more than just hip hop. He's like, he's just an all around artist. I mean, he loves country music. Have you seen that video of Post Malone doing country music? It's been crazy. But I'm here to talk about by far the bookends, what I consider the bookends of not just 90s rap, but hip-hop in general. Guys that changed it. I mean, guys that literally took that genre and completely changed it. And it was huge. I mean, you're talking about Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls. Two guys that inevitably were going to collide. At some point, they were going to collide. They were destined to collide. They were destined to work together or hate each other. And they did both. Unfortunately, the latter is what we remember. The biggest hip-hop rivalry in history. And I don't think we're ever going to get another uh, another one of those. And I don't think anybody remembers, or not remembers, I don't think anybody realizes just how huge that was and detrimental to the world and detrimental to the music scene and hip-hop. It changed the landscape. When Tupac came on the scene, I mean, you got to remember, Tupac started two years before Biggie did. He had two years in the game before Biggie did. So he kind of had a head start. And Tupac is a very different artist than Biggie. Tupac was a, a poet. He was a poet. He, he, he went to acting. You know, he believed in acting. And I'm not talking about when he was in Juice or Poetic Justice or gang-related. I'm talking about when he was in school. English, art, literature, acting. That was Tupac. That's who he was as a person. Throw the bandana away. Forget the thug life. Look at him as a person in his soul. That's who he was. That's very different than Biggie Smalls. Biggie Smalls, yes, he was an artist as far as music goes, but he didn't have that same passion for that as Tupac. He was about the money. He was was tired of being poor. He was tired of being picked on. He was tired of not having anything. He wanted the money. He saw what other people did. He started slanging. These guys came from very different worlds, although very similar worlds. And you gotta, so when Tupac entered the music scene two years for Biggie, Tupac was born in New York. So he might be claiming West Coast. He was born in New York. He was born in Harlem. And he struggled 
in Harlem. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of background. The first time he took the mic for real and, and not just being on the back, you know, not just mixtapes, not just at clubs, when he really started to get his poetry and really turn it into lyrics and he got into the music scene, he was a roadie and a backup dancer, if you can believe that, for Digital Underground. You know Digital Underground, the Humpty Dance? There's other songs out too. But he, he was working with them. And he struggled and he almost quit. And finally, he got on the microphone and they gave him a verse. And then they gave him a second verse. And then he was rapping and rapping and he blew up. In 1991, he made his, de- his debut album, Tupacalypse Now. Probably one of the most controversial things that he could have done was when he came out with that track, Brenda's Got a Baby. If you don't know the song Brenda's Got a Baby and you're a fan of music and you're a fan of Tupac, I suggest you go listen to it. Because this was a song that when he signed to create this, he wanted this song to be the the hit. He wanted this song to have the money behind it. And you know that the record label was not about it. The song Brenda's Got a Baby is not just about an underage girl getting pregnant. This is about an underage girl having an incestual baby. Being turned out, for lack of a better term, let's just, if you you guys aren't familiar with the term turned out, I'll just tell you. Becoming a prostitute while the baby sleeps in a dumpster and is neglected. (laughs) I'm not laughing at the subject matter, but he ripped that story from a headline that happened in the ghetto that he grew up in. That was his biggest thing. I didn't just make this up. This is what I see. This woman's hooked on drugs. She's turned out. This baby's a crack baby now. This baby's not this baby's related to her. Not because that's the daughter or that's, you know, the mom, but this is an incestual baby. In 91, talking about these things were taboo. Not that they're great to talk about now, but we see a lot more in 2021. But to sing about them and put them on an album and try to get that song on the radio, guess what? That song did appear on the radio. Yes, it was edited from the language, but the content was there. Unreal. And that was his debut album, and the rest was history. Now, simultaneously, you look at, and I'm just giving you guys background before I start talking about me and what I think and blah, blah, blah. I can deep dive into Tupac. And actually, I was just talking to a friend of mine and we were deep diving over on Soundwave. So if you guys want to go check out Soundwave, we deep dive into some Tupac lyrics over there. Um, but in New York, Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. Biggie, Notorious B.I.G., Biggie Smalls, he was in really good high schools. He really was. English was a strong subject for him. But he just wasn't into it. He wanted to rap. He would rap on the streets. He'd deal drugs. And he would rap and trade tapes. He just liked to hear his own voice. He wasn't as confident as Tupac was, but he knew he had something. And then one day, a demo made its way to Source Magazine, one of the biggest hip-hop magazines out there. Had young talent on there. And guess who saw it? Sean Diddy Combs, a.k.a. Puff Daddy. 1993, two years after Tupac came out with Tupacalypse Now, his first single hit, Party and Bull S, Party and BS, I'm not going to swear on here, I'm going to try not to, came out in 93. And there they go, and here they're on their way. By the time that that, by the time that that came around, Tupac was on his way to be a platinum-selling artist, he already was. Biggie asked, this is is an interesting story I don't think you guys know about, Biggie asked a drug dealer one time to introduce him to Tupac at an L.A. party because Biggie wanted to talk to Pac because they were both from New York and they could relate. 
And that's when they met. They met at a party. They met at a nightclub. They sat down over french fries and burgers and talked. Talked about music. Talked about where they came from. Talked about the respect they had of each other because they were both, you know, he was, Tupac was there and going even further and he saw Biggie pop up. And I was like, all right. They drank, they hung out, they became buddies. They were like just a pair of friends that were coming together. Biggie would actually legitimately crash on Tupac's couch when Tupac was out in California doing his thing. And whenever Tupac was in the neighborhood, he'd go hang out with Biggie in New York. They just sleep, they just sleep in the same place, they party, they hang out. And there was a, I believe it was in 93, they got up on stage, I think it was at Madison Square Garden, if I'm not mistaken. And you can look it up. They got up on stage and they freestyled together. Biggie looked at Tupac as almost like an older brother in the sense that he was in the business for so long. And he even asked him at one point to manage his career. He, Biggie asked Tupac, I need a manager. I need you to manage my career. Because Puff Daddy was helping him get in the gigs and shows. But Puff Daddy wasn't on Biggie like that. Tupac told Biggie, nah, stay with Puff. He will make you a star. Because Tupac didn't like mixing business with friendship. He just didn't. He didn't want to do that. He separated the two of them. They could hang out. They could rap together. They could talk about it. But they didn't want it. When it came down to the money, he didn't want to do that. And to think about back then, to think about knowing what happened and knowing the ending of this story. To think about Tupac and Biggie just being friends like that and Biggie looking at Tupac and being like, dude, take my career. Now, before I get into the other part of the story, which I'm sure you guys know what happened, I used to listen to Tupac way more than Biggie. I still do. Now at 43 years old, the feud's over, they're both dead, I can appreciate Biggie. I still think, in my opinion, I still think Tupac was a better artist overall than Biggie from what he had to say from who he was as a person, from his charismatic personality, from his acting, everything. And that's not putting Biggie down. It's just different. I'm drinking my cold brew right now. This got to be the whitest thing I've ever done in my life, by the way, guys. The whitest thing I've ever done in my life. Drink a pumpkin spice cold brew and deep dive about Tupac and Biggie. I know I got friends that are rolling their eyes and laughing at me right now. They were all excited to listen to this, and they're like, did Brandon just say he's drinking cold brew pumpkin spice talking about Tupac and Biggie? That's the whitest thing in the world, man. Anyway, um, it's so basic, it's not even funny. But, uh, <laughs> but I've always, I always thought Tupac had it. I mean, the way he rapped, the way he delivered. And then when you look at him, if you, if, if you take away the beats and take away the lyrics, or, or take away the song and just look at the words on paper, you can see what he's been through in life, the creativity, but you can see the poetry. You could see how those were poems, how when he had his book of poems and he turned them into songs, you, you get that vibe. You know what he's saying. You know, not only has he seen a lot of stuff and read it and ripped it out of the newspapers, he's been there. And make no mistake about it, even though I talk about Biggie dealing drugs, Tupac's been there. I mean, his mom was an active member of the Black Panther Party, Afina Shakur. She was pregnant, pregnant with Tupac when she went to jail. True story. And she was a pretty big leader, actually, in Harlem, if I'm not mistaken. I think, I think it was in April 68, 69. There was, there was 21 Black Panthers were arrested and they were charged with conspiracy to bomb, uh, to bomb, I can't talk, to bomb a police station in multiple public places in New York, if I'm not mistaken. So, obviously, that was a big deal. Afina, Tupac's mom, represented herself. She represented herself in trial. 
She interviewed witnesses. She argued in the courtroom. She cross-examined people. In 1971, her and the other 21 members were acquitted. After an eight-month trial, eight or maybe even seven months, they were acquitted. Now, she spent two years in jail before being acquitted. And actually, I don't... She wasn't a... No, Tupac, she was not pregnant with Tupac in jail. I think it was her other son, if I'm not mistaken. So scratch that. Tupac was not born in prison. Or, you know, you know what I'm saying. But can you believe... I mean, this she's a very smart, smart woman. And at the time... I mean, you're talking 1960s? Unheard of to have a black woman in a New York courtroom represent herself. And they were acquitted. And that's amazing to me. And that was the driving force. And although Tupac and his mom had some issues, and the relationship issues, because she got hooked on drugs, and she admits it, she was going through a lot of changes. Tupac blamed her a lot of times for putting them in the situations and getting people involved uh, in his life that didn't need to be involved. He blamed her for introducing him to all these drug dealers and stuff. But make no mistake, you listen to the song, Dear Mama, he loves his mama. I mean, he's talking about his childhood. He acknowledges her troubles with addiction and his trouble, but all it is is about love. It's all about love for his mom and how she managed to hold that family together and how he managed to lift her up when it was his turn. So, That kind of gives you a little bit about who Tupac was as a person, as a family. And I know I digressed a little. But that's where Tupac got that passion and that education and that drive. I mean, his mom beat it into him. You go to school, you do that. Even when she was on drugs, you get that education. You learn. You you learn to represent yourself because nobody will. And I don't care if you're black or white. That's a that's a bold, that's a real statement. You learn to take care of yourself because nobody else is going to do it for you. Family, friends, whatever, yeah, they'll help you out. But when in the end, you got to do it. So that's what Tupac did. Now that was a little bit different than Biggie. A little bit different. It's not to say Biggie didn't have that drive, but he knew from the start when he was selling dope and rapping on the streets, that's what he, that he saw that as his way to get out. And a lot of artists do. But he could have became a much bigger drug dealer and we could have never heard a song from Biggie. Luckily, Puffy found him. So for me, when I listen to Tupac and I listen to Biggie, and especially back then, I just, I liked Pac. I liked his aggression. I liked his anger. I liked his passion. I liked his frustration. Because as a kid, as a teenager, that's what I was. It was loud, aggressive. I mean, and, and I say this, and I'm, I'm not painting a picture like I was some bad kid. I did some bad things, but I wasn't a bad kid. I was very mouthy, though. And for some of you that knew me in my <laughs> 20s and 30s, I was. I was loud. You know, five, five and a half, ready to just say, hey, I don't care who you are. I'm going to knock you out. I'm going to take you down. You're not going to stop me. Well, Tupac wasn't exactly that much taller, and he felt the same way. He didn't give a crap. And that's how I was. So I related to him on that level, that passion. And oddly enough, not oddly, I had the same drive for literature and music and writing and art. And I love that. I mean, that was my passion in school. So when I started to get to know Tupac beyond the artist, not like I knew him, but, you know, read about him, I, I just kind of affiliated with that. And those songs, those albums that they dropped, those were key moments in my life. You know, whether I was going through something with my friends or whether I experienced a loss or I was dating somebody. I mean, I can remember every Tupac album that came out and when I got it. And I just started kind of focusing on Pac. I kind of ignored Biggie. But Biggie also wasn't dropping the albums like Pac was. Not right away. 
And I remember the first time, this was 1994. They were supposed to do, uh, there was a, I think I was reading Rolling Stones. And Tupac and Biggie were actually going to perform together. Tupac had not signed with Death Row Records yet. Okay. They were not only going to perform together, they were working on a project together. And they were working on with uh, Lil Sean, another rapper. And Tupac went to, I think it was, God, it was right after Thanksgiving. Yeah, it was November. November 30th. He went to Times Square Recording Studios in New York, obviously, and was getting ready to go upstairs. Now, upstairs, Biggie and P. Diddy were up there. So when he went into New York to go in there, to, to go up there and get in the elevator and get ready to go, he was shot in the lobby five times. Attacked five times. And this is where things got sketchy. When you talk to, and you, when you read about, and when you watch the horribly done movies on Pac and Biggie, Biggie heard that Pac was getting shot and they were rushing downstairs to help. I'm throwing quotations in the air. All Pac remembers was laying on the ground, shot five times. This is according to Pac and people that were there. Getting shot five times... And he said the crew looked surprised and guilty. That when he saw Biggie and Puffy running out of there, they weren't running away from this crime scene. They were trying to find out who did it. Tupac saw them as running away and he believed that they knew who did it. Because they had had some little stupid beefs back and forth, you know, just dumb stuff. And because he did, because Pac was getting, well, paranoid. Now, Puffy claimed in an article that they were, they were doing nothing but love and concern and they were trying to find the people. And you got to remember, these guys were a lot younger then too. This isn't old Puff Daddy. This isn't I Married J-Lo. This is like we're going to go around, we're still dabbling with hood stuff. And he said, no, we were looking for those people. But Tupac believed that Biggie knew not only who shot him, but that he might have had a hand in it. Because Pac's big thing was, how does something happen like this in your town and you don't know about it? And that goes back to that mentality, you know, that gangland mentality. So when Pac, I remember when Tupac got shot five times, I was like, oh my God. Because yes, I had heard about that stuff happening back in the day. Let's not forget back in the day with NWA, the stuff that went down with them, when Ice-T was rapping. Like, let's look at that stuff, you know? Even, even with Run DMC, they had issues. But this was different. These were two major mega superstars out in the limelight. And this happened. And it was all over the news. All over the news. Now, the problem was, after Pot got shot five times, he survived, that's not the problem. But he had to go to jail. He had to go to trial. He was in a wheelchair for another incident. It was an incident with a gun, um, I believe. I don't think this was the rape incident. Oh, he was found not guilty on rape because I don't think he did it anyway. Um, when he was there the whole time, he was angry. He couldn't write. He was shot five times. He was in a wheelchair. He was, he was mad, and he was looking at what Biggie was doing. And Biggie and... Puffy were rising to the top, rising to the top. Bad Boy Records, right? Bad Boy Records was formed. One of the biggest East Coast record labels ever. And that was P. Diddy's. You had, who'd you have on there? Maze, uh, Nas, Biggie, Puff Daddy, all these people. Foxy Brown, all of them were on there. Somebody else too. Well, Faith, Biggie's, anyway, I'll get to that in a minute. So he got incarcerated. He went to jail. And he didn't know what to do. At that moment, he had a lot of offers from people to tell his story, write a book, all this stuff. And Pac was facing some time. He didn't know what to do. And he didn't have the money because the money dried up. 
Record label was like, no, we're not going to do this with you. You got to get this worried out. Well, guess what happens when Pac's in jail? He reached out to Suge Knight. Suge Knight, the up-and-coming CEO of Death Row Records in L.A. Suge Knight had already been reaching out to Pac. And I'm telling you guys this because it all goes with the story. This isn't just like a, a biography on Tupac and Biggie. It's just part of why I got so wrapped up in it. Because this was all in Rolling Stone, on MTV. Uh, and again, reading the mags, reading Vibe, reading Source, all this. This wasn't, we didn't have the big monster social media at the time. So the fact that a lot of this stuff was happening on your five o'clock news, I mean, maybe not him signing with Death Row. That happened on MTV News, MTV News, MTV News. And I remember Kurt Loder busting that out. And I was like, oh my God, this is huge because Death Row was blowing up. It had Dre, Snoop. I mean, it was getting so big and I could see what was happening. The divide between Tupac and Biggie was getting bigger. And now you had both major superstars on two major levels, major levels with two major labels, Bad Boy Records and Death Row. So what happens? He signs with Death Row Records in jail. (laughs) Signs Death Row Records, Suge Knight posts $1.4 million bond. 1.4 million dollar bond. And that was in 1994. Wrapped up all his court stuff, wrote stuff, went in the studio, 95 to 96. He released a double disc album, which was unheard of. Unheard of. Double disc album. All Eyes on Me and came out and was flashing, flew a private jet, came out with Death Row Records. I think it was October 4th, 1995, technically, he signed. Let me look that up real quick. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he won the appeal of his 94 conviction. That's what it was. And and it was just October 4th, 1995, he signed with Death Row, Death Row Records. And in 1996, I believe... No, that's not true. I think it was earlier than that. I think it was 96 when that record came out. I'll have to look. But anyway, I digress. All Eyes on Me came out, double disc album. Double disc. He sealed the deal with Death Row Records. He came out swinging. He came out swinging on East Coast. And that was what cemented the East Coast-West Coast rivalry. Now, I'm in Michigan, in Detroit. We lean way more towards the East Coast than we do the West Coast. From a from a geo from a geographical geographical wow Brandon let's take another sip of my pumpkin spice latte and see if I can talk from a geographical <laughs> location to just the way we operate it's a lot different than California thank God but he came out swinging taking down bad boy. He literally said, any artists out there that want to be an artist and stay a star, you won't have to worry about the executive producer, producer trying to be in all your videos dancing. Come to death row. That's what Suge Knight said. That was followed up by Tupac in the 1995 Source Awards where Tupac said, no reason to go to, no reason to, go to, to Bad Boy Records if your name isn't Puffy. And the shots were fired. Now, there was never any proof that, he, that Biggie or Combs knew who shot Tupac, but it was in Tupac's head. And, it was, and now he signed with Death Row. And when he signed with Death Row, the West Coast gang mentality that Suge Knight had was feeding into Tupac's fire and his anger and his passion and his frustration. It was... It got real ugly. It got so ugly that Tupac addressed a song to Biggie because Biggie had had enough. Biggie was getting, Biggie wouldn't, he was hurt. 
He was reaching out to Pac. He was trying to smooth things over. Nothing. When you were with Death Row, you were at Death Row, you were in a gang. Why? Because look at Suge Knight. Suge Knight was a gang member. He was affiliated with the Bloods. He was feuding with the Crips when he was growing up. And he ran that studio like a gang. He hired blood gang members to be security. So those guys that you see in videos walking around with Pac, those were gang members on his payroll. Everything they did was blood colors. If you look up anything about Shed Knight, he's a gang member. And he's a big dude too. He was not this nice guy. I mean, you're talking about a guy that took Vanilla Ice and dangled Vanilla Ice from a balcony in order to get royalties from Ice Ice Baby. That's a whole different story that we could get into. But you got a guy who, who reached out to Dr. Dre in 91 to set up Death Row Records. A year after that, what happens? The chronic drops. Boom. Shot to New York. 93. What happens in 93? He signed Snoop Dogg and MC Hammer. Snoop Dogg really... Uh, I know MC Hammer, right? Probably the worst thing MC Hammer ever did. Snoop Dogg releases Doggy Style in 93. 95. Tupac signed. Tupac and Dre team up. Bam. California Love comes out. I mean, this is crazy, and, and he is just taking pot shots at the West Coast. But what happened, this is where things even escalate even more. And meanwhile, I'm seeing all this stuff on television, and I'm like, well, I'm choosing sides. I'm on Tupac's side, West Coast. Which made no sense from considering where I was, but I just, I just sided with Tupac. I didn't like Puffy anyway. I still think Puffy's just not that great of a, uh, an artist. I mean, he's not even good, actually. It's like one or two songs I like, and I don't even know if I like them. But I chose my side, and it was Tupac. In my bedroom, man, I had everything pop, music, um, albums, like real albums, you know, the vinyl, CDs, I had pictures, West Coast, everything, as far as Tupac goes. Not like that I was a big California fan, like all of a sudden I was a Laker fan. No, that's not me. But when it came to this feud, I picked a side. And what was interesting was everybody across the nation was picking sides in this hip-hop feud that turned violent and ugly. It was like you had a gang war on television. I'm going to take a commercial break. Be right back to wrap this up. Tupac and Biggie, deep dive. Oh man, that is a good song. Look, you can't talk about Biggie with or Tupac without talking about Biggie. And you can't talk about Biggie without talking about Tupac. That's how connected they were. And that's how tight this competition and this feud got. It's funny because uh, my son, who's four, not that I listen to this stuff in front of him very much uh, because of the language and things like that. He doesn't need to hear it, you know? Just doesn't need to. He's got plenty of time to hear stuff. Here's enough crap at other places. He doesn't need to hear from me. Um, he knows Biggie because of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And so I, put, I play that song and he's got like a Biggie, two big, a Biggie hoodie, Biggie t-shirt. He's had like three Biggie t-shirts. They don't make a lot of Tupac clothes for toddlers. You know what I'm saying? I don't think they make a lot of Tupac clothes for me. I only got one. Actually, this guy I work with gave me a great Tupac shirt and it just says, only God can judge me, which is... <laughs> a phenomenal song and probably one of the best statements you could hear in your life. But anyway, I digress. Let's get in and continue this deep dive of Tupac and Biggie. So you're at the point now where you know that it's heated. Biggie comes out with his B-side single a couple months after, probably a couple months after the Source Awards where they were both there, Death Row and 
oh man, Death Row and um, like a Bad Boy. And it was not good. Not good. Comes out with a song called Who Shot Ya? And the song Who Shot Ya is a direct attack at Tupac. Talking about how Pac says that, you know, blames Biggie, blames his crew, makes fun of New York. Biggie calls him out. Not a wise decision. I'm not saying that Pac was acting right in what he said, and really, this whole thing was a mess, but not a good idea. So what does Pac do? He comes out with Hit Him Up. Now, Hit Him Up is the most venomous, vile, fire song I've ever heard, especially back in the 90s. When you've got the first line, and I got to edit it, that's why I effed your white, you fat mf'er. That's the first line. And Tupac doesn't stop there. What he, I, <laughs> he destroys Bad Boy Records. He destroys Biggie. Any chance of patching up any beef they had is done. And who's in the background? Suge Knight loves it. Now, Biggie's wife at the time, Faith Evans, said, no, that did not happen. That's not how I do business. But there are rumors, lots of rumors. And rumors are garbage, but there's from credible sources that they did sleep together. But he was not married to her at the time. Who knows? But I'm telling you what, if if you're a fan and you're interested in it, listen to Hit Em Up. Listen to Who Shot You? And listen to Hit Him Up. Well, first off, Hushachi is probably a better song structurally, but Hit Him Up is better verses and much. And Tupac's rap on there destroys Biggie. Because Biggie's got that East Coast style of rap. I know East Coast style has changed dramatically, but Tupac comes out with fire. Without Tupac, you get no Eminem. And and, and and Shady will tell you that himself. But that feud got so nasty. And it was all over television. And guess what? The media fueled it too. From local media on East Coast, West Coast radio stations, you had, radio, you had people that were interviewing both drawing a line in the sand. I remember watching Kurt Loder interview Tupac and Biggie. And he's just, and I, and you know, I like Kurt Loder a lot now than I did back in the day, but I remember him, he chose his side because he was out in California. That's where Kurt Loder lives. I remember Sway trying to, you know, be cool, but you had Pac and you had Biggie, but then you had the two mouthpieces, Suge Knight, who was just venomous. He was, when he walked in a room, he commanded your attention because of how big he is. He is just like the kinkpin. And then he was a mouthpiece. But you'd watch Pac just spew off hatred and propaganda and Suge Knight back there smoking a cigar not caring because all he saw was money. And money they got. As of right now, if you look at Tupac's record sales, just to kind of give you an idea, he sold more than 70 million records worldwide. 11 platinum albums. That's huge. And that's not even including the stuff he did with Dre, Snoop, Warren G. Um, God, who else was on Death Row? Not, not Hammer. Hammer. Hammer bounced pretty quickly. But you look at the picture of Death Row Records and you've got Dre, Snoop, and Tupac. That's insane. Now you look at what Biggie Smalls did. I mean, he reached number one on Billboard 200. He's got certified sales over 28 million. 21 million in albums. 28 million copies, 21 million albums. Unreal. However, it doesn't really compare to Pac. Now, it doesn't help that Pac came out with more stuff after his death, too, because Pac was always writing, because that's what Pac did. He wrote. He just wrote. 
all the time. Things got really nasty, though, really nasty. Because in September 1996, he was killed. Tupac was shot and killed. In Las Vegas, there was a drive-by shooting, and he was shot and killed. Now, there have been rumors that Knight was the target. He was also being involved, and there's rumors that he was involved in a big feud. There's... There, that did not stop the East Coast-West Coast feud. And I remember that because I was in school, actually, when that happened. And I remember, now again, we didn't have our iPhones. We didn't have tablets. I had a pager. That's how I found out Tupac died. My buddy paged me in class and said, Tupac's dead. And I was like, what? And I remember leaving class going to a payphone, calling my buddy, because he was home, and he was watching MTV News. He's like, come on over after class. And I went over there. Actually, this was Jeremy, who I went to Chicago with. It's the last podcast I did with Jeremy, that this is a guy. I went over to his house, and I, I think I spent the night, and all we did was just watch what happened with Pac. And it, this was not a situation that was just on MTV. This was everywhere. This was the main story. CNN, Fox, MSNBC, Local 5, Detroit 4, everywhere. Radio stations. WJOB. 97.9 The Jam. They were playing everything but, I mean, it was Tupac, 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 Tupac. He was dead. And I was like, instantly, because of how much I followed this battle, this this rivalry, this East Coast, West Coast thing, instantly I was like, Biggie did it. Because it's happened in Las Vegas. It didn't happen in California. It did not happen in New York. It happened after a Mike Tyson fight in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand, when he left the MGM Grand. Now, everybody was saying, look, there was a video of him fighting this guy, they think that was retaliation. But he was dead. And I, and I remember me and Jeremy talking. I was like, dude, this is, this is, it's not over. Like, this is going to get ugly and there's going to be retaliation. This is a gangland mentality here. Suge Knight is a gang leader. And we're going to find out. He's going to die. Someone's going to die. Someone's going to go after Um, not just Puffy, but Bad Boy, the whole entire Bad Boy thing. This West Coast, East Coast, East Coast thing has hit too hard. It's not over yet. Shortly after Tupac's death, Biggie came out and said he wanted to put an end to this fighting. He said, we are two, in- we are two individuals and we literally waged a beef against two sides of the country, West Coast and East Coast. And it should have just been one man against one man, and it never should have got that far. He's like, and he said in an interview, I've got to try to flip it because Pot can't be the one to try to squash it because he's gone. I got to end this. It should have never got this big. Now, you know who wasn't trying to end it? Death Row Records. And Death Row was falling apart. Dre was leaving. Hammer was done. Snoop is Snoop. But he didn't want any of this. And I remember reading that interview thinking to myself, well, of course, Biggie's going to say that because he doesn't want to die. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he doesn't want to die. He knows people are coming for him because he's involved. And that was my logic because of everything that I was reading. And I wasn't talking about reading. I would read everything about Tupac and Biggie. Everything. The music. I mean, this is what we played. I mean, I remember my buddy Ken, we'd be roll, we would roll around just listening to both albums, All Eyes on Me. Because Ken liked Tupac a lot, but he was a much more Snoop fan than I was, which makes sense based on our personalities, honestly. It really did. I remember when we did uh, Two of America's Most Wanted. He was Snoop, I was Pac. Like, 
which is a Tupac song, guys, if you guys aren't familiar with that. One of the coolest songs ever. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, so he, but he appreciated that. So when you look at Tupac dying, getting shot and killed, okay? 96, right? September 1996. Biggie was killed. Shot and killed March 9th, 1997. In a drive-by. Now, just so you know, Nobody has been arrested for the deaths of Tupac and Biggie. There's a there's accused, there's suspects. They were Suge Knight was accused of orchestrating the killing on Biggie because he knew the people that allegedly, allegedly were going after him, but not one arrest has happened. No one's, and, and no one at all is being arrested. And there was a movie that came out called City of Lies. It's with Johnny Depp. It's actually really good. And there's also a documentary on Netflix. I think it's Biggie and Tupac. That's really good. And it looks at the deaths of both these and the, corrup- the corruption of <laughs> shocking the police department who failed to make any arrest because there's all that of course but the thing about the thing about Biggie Smalls and his death which was crazy to me um, the, how close it was because if you look at that September to March that's not that's really not that far and it's been reported for years that he was hired by a, the hitman that killed him was hired by Suge Knight there's a retired LAPD officer, LAPD officer Greg Candig, said that Suge Knight orchestrated the murder for the in revenge of killing of Tupac Shakur, and that they they have witnesses and they know about it. The other thing was the hip hop artist, um, the hip hop artist, like like you don't know what I'm talking about. Notorious B.I.G. was shot four times in a drive by, in L.A. Only one of the shots, though, was... Out of those four times, one of them was fatal. Now, B.I.G. was a big boy, so... If you look at Tupac and his size getting shot five times and surviving, him getting shot four and surviving is possible, especially in a driveway. But after they did the autopsy, it was one shot that killed him. He was 24 years old. 24 years old. Um, <clears throat> his mom filed a lawsuit, $400 million wrongful death lawsuit against LAPD, alleging uh, they basically said the corrupt LAPD officers were responsible for his death because of what happened, because the lack of response, because of withholding evidence, all this stuff. And the only reason he did, the reason he died in LA is because he was out there. He would go out to L- LA all the time, but he came out with an album, um, I think it was in 90, yeah, it was 97, Life After Death. And he was trying to film uh, videos. And he gave a radio interview. So everybody knew that Biggie was in town. Biggie wasn't roaming around with a lot of security. He was seen walking all up and down the street. This was still a huge heated area. This was no different than a crip walking into a Bloods, Bloods territory, honestly. And it was only six months after Pac's death. L.A. was on fire. The album was getting ready to come out in March. So he gave an award, I think it was like at the Soul Train Award Show. In LA, he was booed off stage. Can you believe that? He tried to go to a, a Vibe magazine party in LA, couldn't get in. Then he got in for a little bit. But there was members of Bloods and Crips out there. And this was a big party. Faith Evans, Aaliyah, Chris Tucker, yeah, the Waynes brothers, uh, Missy Elliott, DJ Quick. Big names, and then you had the Bloods and Crips hanging out. He was not killed at night. He was killed at 12.30. I guess it was late night, now that I think about it. Yeah, it wasn't p.m., it was nighttime. So he was killed at night, but he, he, wasn't, he wasn't like in some hood. 
He was out there in Holiday, or Holiday, Hollywood Hills, man. He was trying to get to another party. He was in the front seat. Bam, guess what happens? Drive by. Two SUVs, they were being followed. They got separated. The Bad Boy Records did have a security officer in one of the SUVs that was following this other guy because he noticed people following Biggie. Pulled up a side of him. Pop. Rolled down the window. Nine millimeter. Four bullets hit him. One killed him. He was pronounced dead at 1.15 in the morning. It wasn't until 2012 that the autopsy report and the final report of his death was released to the, pro- to the public. That was like, what, 15 years later? This was a big deal. There was a giant investigation into it. Um, they were linking Wallace's murder with that of Shakur's. There's all kinds of stuff. That's a separate podcast I could do, but what, you know, just for that, because the mystery is out there. Shortly after that, Death Row Records filed for bankruptcy. Suge Knight got arrested, got released. He was trying to bring it back, but nobody wanted to work with Suge. Nobody. He was toxic. You drove Tupac around one of the greatest artists of all time, and he died. His, his gangland mentality is what killed Tupac. Regardless, now do I think that Biggie had somebody go after Tupac? I actually don't. I did. I did. I was so into it. I would get mad at people when they play Biggie. I had a friend of mine that was like, man, it's just music. No, man. I was invested into this. It wasn't music. Like Tupac didn't know who I was. I didn't know who he was, but I was loyal. I was like, no. I don't think that Biggie killed Tupac, but I do think that representatives of Death Row, West Coast, you know, whatever, Suge Knight, yeah, I do think they had him killed. I do. And I don't think that Biggie had Tupac shot the first time. I think that was coincidence. I think you had people trying to make a name for themselves that knew that Pac was in the same building as Biggie they might have tried to get Biggie, had Biggie come downstairs. But they thought, you know what? Pac's been talking a little trash here and there. I'm going to take him out. And they just did. Because if you look at those days with Tupac walking around, he didn't have all kinds of security with him. He was loud. He pissed off a lot of people. And when you're loud, someone's going to come after you sooner or later in life. Take it from me. You're going to get your butt kicked sooner or later. It happens. So I don't think that Tupac was killed by somebody in Biggie's camp, but I do think that Biggie was killed by somebody in Pac's camp. Not, I mean, obviously Pac was dead for six months, but I think Suge Knight, being who he is, but he lost everything. Suge Knight lost everything. Suge Knight is in jail for basically trying to kill somebody with his car. You can watch it on YouTube. It's horrible. At a drive-thru. So he'll be rotten in jail. And I think the things are coming out. I think as you watch that movie and you watch the documentary on the investigation of Tupac and Biggie's death, you start to see a lot of corruption on both sides. First off, it's LAPD. Shocker that there's corruption. But you start to see people being paid off. I mean, we're talking about mob mentality here. Gang payoffs. And there's a lot of people coming out. This retired L.A. police officer who says he worked the case, he talks about a lot of stuff that wasn't in any of the reports. I don't know why he would have a reason to make that up. I really don't. It's interesting. You guys should look it up. I'm not going to dive into it because that's not what this is about. But Tupac and Biggie, by far, two of the greatest rappers of all time. And when that happened, when that ended, that's what ended the feud. When Tupac's mother and Biggie Smalls' mother and family went on, and, and Biggie's like kids went on stage, united, wearing shirts, representing both their sons and saying enough. When they died and then when those, that family went on stage and said enough at the award show, that's what ended the East Coast, West Coast thing. 
and it might go in the streets and it went in the streets for some time and there still might be a little bit, but it, no, I doubt it. Not like it was. Quite frankly, after that, that's when Bad Boy fell apart too. Yeah, Puffy's doing fine. He had some other artists, but dude, a lot of the artists quit. A lot of them were like, I'm done. This, cause this went from making music to just making murder, murder. Nas left after that, Nas. He said that when Tupac and Biggie died, that was the end of rap. And you know what? From a music level, yeah. Not only did they change it when they came on the scene, they changed it when they left the scene. And I remember that. I remember being like, what the heck? Because there was a dry spell. I still listen to Cube. Cube had some good stuff coming out, but he was, he was coming at the end of his career too. You know, he was doing some cool things, but he was coming at the end of his career. And I still listen to other guys. But I remember rap for a long time just was like a couple track albums. Okay, I like that track. Like DMX was there. That was great. Okay, Jay-Z. All right. Oh, Eminem. And then we could talk about that another day. But it wasn't the same. And it hasn't been the same since. We've had those phenomenal pillar artists like Kanye, and I don't care what you think about Jay-Z, if he's good, if you think he's, because he's, he's probably not the best rapper ever, but he's had some great albums and songs. So we got to throw his name in there. You've got Jay-Z, you've got Eminem, obviously, Kanye, but, but those guys were like one in a million. We had a moment where we had Snoop, Dre, Tupac, Biggie, the Fugees, Ice Cube, DMX, they were all out. Like hip hop was at its greatest. Even Ice T, and he was coming to the end of his career. I know I'm forgetting a ton of other guys too, but now you just lost the pillars, the guys that changed the scene. The biggest rivalry in hip hop gone. It really took a, it took a blow, man. The industry took a blow. And I remember feeling that way. I was like, dude, Tupac died and rap is over. But that's how invested I was because those songs mattered. I couldn't relate to Brenda's Got a Baby, but I could feel what he was saying. I couldn't relate having a crack addicted mother. I, I can't. But guess what? I could feel it, and I know somebody who has one or had one but I could feel it. I could feel what he was saying. I I could listen to the words. Sometimes I would just shut the music off and just read his lyrics. And I was like, you know what? This guy is, is a one of a kind. Well, thanks for listening. I know some of you, this is not your thing and that's okay, but it's important. It's a part of the average Joe. It's what makes up me. It's what makes up my music. It makes up my time and my life. And I just want to say thanks. I could go on and on about Tupac. There's so much more stuff that has happened. I kind of just glazed over it. It wasn't really like an A&E documentary, But it was a big part. It was a big part of everybody I hung out with. It's still a big part. There's songs that come on now and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Let's turn this up because this reminds me. But I appreciate you guys listening and, and thank you for your support as always. Big shout out to my friends over at Texas Oasis Brewing. Can't wait to see you next month in the new year, 2022. Again, still sounds weird, but whatever. Uh, can't wait to do a live podcast from there. Those guys have been great supporting. Although, you know what? I'm going to give you guys a little grief. You're supposed to send me my Christmas beer. I don't have it yet. I can't find it anywhere. Jason, if you're listening, I need some Christmas beer. All right, guys. Thanks again. Appreciate you. Thanks again for listening to the Life of an Average Show podcast. Thank you for the support. I'd like to give a big shout out to all the platforms that carry the show and a huge shout out to my official sponsor, Oasis Texas Brewing. You guys are awesome. You guys have been great and and I really appreciate it. Can't wait to see you in the new year doing the live show down in Austin, Texas. It's been a long time since I've been down to Austin. Been a long time since I've been at the brewery. So looking forward to that couple things real quick don't forget to follow on instagram the life of an average joe podcast facebook or you can email 
the life of an average show podcast at gmail.com. I want to make a couple corrections because I realized I said some things wrong in this episode. And it's mostly because I have a lot of information. I said that Tupac went to jail for shooting somebody or uh, an incident with a gun. That was not true. He did get convicted of rape, supposed to serve four years. However, he got out because he signed with Death Row Records. So I just wanted to say that because I failed to mention that or I got the information incorrect and I don't want anybody to think I don't know what I'm talking about because I do. And somebody will point it out. But yeah, that's what happened. He did get um, arrested and it was for the rape. However, it was proven later by multiple witnesses that he did not do that. So he was wrongly convicted. Tupac was a lot of, Tupac was a lot of things. A liar, I don't think, was one of them when it came to stuff like that. So thanks again for listening. Just wanted to clear that up and I hope to see you guys soon.